Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo. Joe Wolfon is still in Hawaii honeymooning, wrapping up his honeymoon. So we're going to bring in a guest this week, and the topic of conversation is going to mostly center around the Utah Jazz, who have had a very up-and-down season. They were supposed to be a fringe contender at worst, and instead they've looked a lot more like a pretender. There was some drama in Salt Lake City on Wednesday, as it was originally reported that Royce O'Neal was going to replace Mike Conley in the starting lineup against Boston. Conley was Utah's prize acquisition. That was obviously a story that he was going to be replaced in the starting lineup, given how poorly he's been playing. A couple hours later, it was then reported that actually Conley would remain in the starting lineup, despite Jazz players being told otherwise. And it was Joe Ingles who would actually be replaced by Royce O'Neal in the starting lineup. So a lot of moving parts there. The Jazz end up losing another home game to the Celtics. And really the the lineup change didn't seem to bring with it any sense of urgency among the Jazz players. But lucky for us, we have one of the reporters who was actually chasing that lineup change story yesterday from the Salt Lake Tribune, Eric Walden. Eric, thanks for joining us today. I know it's been a busy couple days for you. Yeah, you're welcome, Joseph. It's my pleasure. So I guess off the top, the first question to ask, given everything that went down yesterday and really over the last week or so with the Jazz, is what the heck's going on in Salt Lake City? That is a decidedly excellent question. (laughs) Uh, It's been, yeah, they went into the All-Star break on a four-game winning streak. Things were starting to look up. You know, there there were still obvious deficiencies there. Like, no one had any illusions that, you know, the four-game winning streak had solved all the problems they had, but... You know, there's still an air of hopefulness. Four, four wins in a row. Uh, Donovan and Rudy go into the All-Star game in Chicago. Everyone is happy. Everyone's, you know, got positive vibes. They're thinking, all right, we're going to come out of this five-game homestand. Uh, it's a chance to really kind of solidify their position in the Western Conference playoff race. You know, a season-long five-game homestand. And the defense just continues to nosedive. And it's bizarre because this is a franchise that, you know, prides itself as being the model of consistency. And they're anything but that right now. You know, the, the losses are one thing. Um, I mean, they've been bad enough uh, given that, you know, they've been pretty much non-competitive down the stretch in every single one of these four losses. You know, they had at a couple moments where, you know, they were looking decent. But pretty much you get to the last five minutes of these games and, you know, they were out of it in in each of them. Um, so that's bad enough. Uh, and, and then on top of that, to have this this lineup drama uh, that happened, you know, um, I don't know if it's this way in a lot of other – I, I guess I could say I'm, I'm certain it's not this way in a lot of other markets. Uh, you know, lineup changes happen pretty frequently, but – they're kind of a more rare deal here with the Jazz. You know, Quinn Snyder's famously a little bit prickly when we ask him about starting lineup questions. Not that he's necessarily opposed to talking about it, but he's generally of the opinion that people place a little too much importance upon who starts rather than taking a broader look at what the rotations are, who's still getting minutes, who's finishing down the stretch, you know, things like that. So... The fact that there was this kind of drama related to the starting lineup yesterday, it just shows you like what an interesting and unconventional day it was here in Salt Lake City. 
Yeah, I know you mentioned, you know, the consistency for which the Jazz are known for. The drama with the lineup, I think the thing that confused a lot of people and not just myself, and I know you were one of the actual reporters on the ground, you know, trying to figure out what was going on, but, you know, lineup changes happen, obviously, and we know Mike Conley struggled for whatever reason, just hasn't clicked for him. Even last night, you know, he blew a couple layups, and it just, it's almost sad to watch the way his game has diminished. But if that had been the lineup change, I think as maybe a little surprising as it was, I think people would have just been like, all right, Conley hasn't been playing well. They want Royce O'Neal's defense in there. I think where all the confusion happened, obviously for so many people watching, was when it then came out that, oh, actually Conley is still going to be starting and Joe Ingles is going to be the one who's losing his starting spot. Can you give us any insight into what the vibe around the team was, even just the vibe around the city with the fans? Like, Was it as confusing on the ground as it seemed for those of us watching and following along? It was, it, it was more confusing than that. <laughs> it was such a bizarro day. I mean, the fan reaction was like, with chaos um you know and it's an interesting thing so uh we spoke to quinn snyder pre-game yesterday like because the jazz were not issuing any kind of official statement so we we're trying to work uh sources back channels you know figure out what exactly happened here and speaking to mike after the game he did confirm that uh yeah the original plan was he and and uh quinn and royce had sat down and quinn had said look the defense has just been so bad right now that you know we're gonna try this we're gonna we're gonna move mike to the bench we're gonna move royce back to the starting five uh we're gonna try to juice the perimeter defense that way because it's just been so porous and talking to a few people the best that i can tell is that they had made this plan before shoot around uh they went through the shoot around Everyone, they finished it up. Everyone went home. Mike Conley says he took a nap. And as far as we can tell, what it came down to is Quinn Snyder in the intervening hours had a change of heart for whatever reason. He, he certainly wasn't going to tell us what that was, but that's, that's the intel that we're getting that just kind of as the hours went along, he thought better of it. And he thought, you know, Mike's been a starter pretty much his entire career. Joe has experience coming off the bench. Um, you know, they started this season with the starting lineup that they had yesterday with, with Royce O'Neal and Mike Conley in the lineup, and Joe is the sixth man. And uh, it, it was kind of infamously a disaster. Mike got off to just that incredibly slow start to the season, which, you know, it shocked us at the time, although in retrospect, maybe it shouldn't have been that surprising. A guy spends... 12 years of his career in one place, uh, you know, in, in pretty much in one scheme, doing things a certain way. And then all of a sudden, he's moving across the country, he's moving his family across the country, he's being thrown into an entirely new system. Uh, he's got entirely different teammates that he has to acclimate to. And, like, yeah, no kidding, he struggled. Joe Ingles struggled as well in that role, though, you know, and the thing that we saw with him was over the last few seasons, he had really developed this incredible pick and roll chemistry with Derek Favors, who all of a sudden wasn't there anymore. And at the time, at the beginning of the season, uh, the backup big man who Joe was out there in second units with was Ed Davis, who throughout his career has been an incredible rebounder. He's been a pretty solid rim protector and has never really 
developed as uh, having any kind of offensive touch at all. And you saw Joe struggling with that. So when Quinn kind of did this about face yesterday, it was weird. Honestly, everyone around town has kind of been expecting the Conley to the bench move, just given that, as you mentioned, the fit has not been quite as seamless. And there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, I, I mentioned the acclimation process. He's had the hamstring injury that's cropped up a couple times this year, which have really limited, um, you know, his minutes. Uh, his his ability to develop that on-court chemistry with his new teammates. Um, he's had kind of a lingering knee issue, which has uh, prevented him from playing on both ends of back-to-backs. So, you know, there's all this stuff going on. And so it was kind of inevitable in our estimation that, that a lineup change was probably going to happen, but for it to start off one way and for it to come out that way, and then for a few hours later, for it to just completely change, you know, for them to change their minds about it, it really just it made fans confused. It made the media confused. I think, honestly, it made the players confused. You know, there there was a little extra energy on the defensive end last night, more so than there has been the previous three games. But, man, by the time that loss was over and everyone's sitting in the locker room, the Jazz are, are known for having kind of a – a chirpy locker room you know guys are interacting they're having fun you know they're on their cell phones they're showing each other things they're playing music they're talking last night was the it was a 180 degrees from that it was the complete opposite the complete antithesis nobody's talking everyone's just kind of sitting around moody upset disgruntled whatever the mojo with this organization is, is just really off right now even just watching from afar, you can almost sense that on the court. I know you mentioned the defensive energy was a little better and a little more consistent last night, but just by and large, I thought even the way the Jazz started the game, especially on the offensive end, they didn't really seem to have that kind of sense of urgency that you would normally expect from you know a team that does fancy itself as a contender going through what they went through yesterday. You know, you'd think usually that kind of lineup change and and the way the team had been struggling, and another home game, a national TV game to kind of get things right. I just felt like they were going to come out guns blazing with this sense of urgency, and to me, at least, it didn't really seem like that was the case. And I know they've had their struggles throughout the year. They've been very up and down. But last night was probably the first night where I really started to truly believe, like, maybe this team just isn't as good as we thought they were, or... Like, I don't know, are, are you at that point as well? Do you sense that fans are? Because I know I could hear the Boo Birds coming out through the TV feed last night, and that was something that kind of shocked me too because I think of Utah in a similar light to the way I think of OKC where, you know, even when things aren't going well, I, I can never actually picture hearing boos coming from that home arena. And to hear that last night, you know, made me realize that maybe their fans are starting to think the same way I was thinking. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a curious thing because, you know, you're absolutely right in that jazz fans are some of the most passionate people around, um, so sometimes to their detriment, you know. But the thing is, uh, the jazz are the only professional team here in town, you know, unless you're attending Real Salt Lake of Major League Soccer. But we don't have, you know, a Major League Baseball team. We don't have an NFL team. We don't have an NHL team. So, Aside from, you know, University of Utah or, or BYU college football, the Utah Jazz are really kind of the biggest deal around. And so people live and die with that. And the thing was, uh, 
after all the moves that the front office made this summer, you know, they came to the realization after the uh, after the playoff loss, the first round loss to the Rockets last year, that this roster is presently constructed. Just it, it had reached its limit. You know, it, it had a it had a ceiling on it. Um, the defense was incredible, uh, which is great. You know, they they won a lot of games by playing tough defense. They simply didn't have the firepower to keep up with the Golden States and the, and the Houston's of the league. And so they made a conscious decision. We're really going to kind of retool. And there was so much hype. I don't, I don't know if you remember uh, back during free agency and, and even the time before that, the Conley trade, the Boyan Bogdanovich signing, uh, the Jeff Green, Emmanuel Moutier, Ed Davis signings. You know, these were, these were moves that were lauded from uh, analysts league-wide. You know, they're saying – Wow, you know, aside from the Clippers pulling in Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, aside from the Lakers landing uh, Anthony Davis, which are the types of moves that are, are frankly just, you know, not within the Jazz's reach. This is an organization that's not going to be able to pull in those kind of players. Um, failing those kind of moves, everyone felt like this was really kind of the next best thing that this team had, like, pushed all its metaphorical chips to the center of the table and said, you know, well, we're going for it. And the thinking was, you know, Conley would be an incredible fit. The thinking was uh, Bogdanovich would be an incredible fit. And for a lot of the season, Bogey has been. Um, he's going through a funk right now, which hasn't helped. Uh, as this four-game losing streak has happened, fans are just absolutely beside themselves. There's just such an incredible amount of disappointment and and disheartening feelings going on. You know, there are people questioning whether Quinn Snyder, to the reputation that he has, is one of the top coaches in the league. Uh, there, there are people saying, are, are we stuck with, this, with another mediocre roster for the next few years? They're looking at the salaries that they have with this group. They're looking at uh, the assets that are owed to Memphis for the Conley trade, and they're wondering what is the pathway to kind of getting this team to where it's supposed to be because the idea was this was a team that could challenge for an NBA championship. This is what Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell and, and Bogey and Conley, for that matter, were saying. I mean, Jeff Green and Ed Davis in their introductory press conferences said that they signed with the Jazz because they looked at the roster and thought that's a championship-level team. And the thing is, the defense has just uh, regressed so badly. People are wondering, did the front office uh, completely overcorrect to the point that they rendered what had been an elite defense, you know, pardon my French, but neutered in a way. You know, the Jazz are presently 13th in the league in defensive rating. They have some nights where when the offense is working, they can they can make up for that. When Donovan Mitchell's got it going, Bogey's got it going. And Joe Ingles has it going, and that hasn't been happening lately. You know, this is a team that's for most of the season has led the league in three point percentage. And then I know against Phoenix, they were seven for 31 from deep. Against Boston last night, 12 for 40, 30%. So they're having plenty of issues out there. It's It's been mostly defense, it's been mostly an inability to contain anyone out on the perimeter. I mean, Phoenix scored. 66 points in the paint. They shot 60% from three-point range. Boston last night shoots 
40 plus percent for three point range and scores 56 in the paint. So really it's, it's everywhere. And yeah, people are discouraged. People, there are a lot of fans here who have just outright given up on the season saying, all right, this, this team has been exposed as, as a pretender. And there's kind of this gloom, you know, there's kind of this, this shadow, this cloud hanging over the franchise at the moment where people view it almost as a fait accompli that they're bound for another first round playoff exit and, Let's see what we can do this summer. The contrast between the offense and the defense, I think, is, you know, other than the lineup snafu that happened yesterday, is the most interesting story to me because, you know, you can count me among those people you talked about that when all these moves were made thought for sure the Jazz were right there as a contender, especially in a season where it didn't really seem like there was one clear-cut favorite that was going to run away from the pack. Just given how elite the Jazz defense was and how I think we all assumed it would continue to be because you still have Rudy Gobert there, you still have... Royce O'Neal, Joe Ingles' defense, I think, is underrated. You're bringing in a Mike Conley, who's a solid defender at the point of attack. Ed Davis has been a good defender his entire career. Like, you you looked at the pieces and you thought, okay, the defense is still going to be elite. And now they finally probably figured out the offense because you're bringing in a Mike Conley. You know, Bojan Bogdanovic is probably the perfect kind of guy Utah needed in terms of being like a secondary tertiary scorer that can step up if Donovan's not having a great game or if Mike you know, doesn't have it for whatever night. So it just seemed like all the pieces were there and they were such a complete team. And, you know, on the offensive end, even with all of Conley's struggles, they're a top 10 offense right now. They're number nine. And if someone had told you the Jazz, you know, the pieces would amount to a top 10 offense and you assume their defense would have held true, you'd be like, well, that, that's the contender I envisioned. Do you have any kind of insight or idea why the defense has dropped off so much? Yeah, you know, this is a team that, as you mentioned, it, it had high aspirations coming in. You know, uh, back on the media day that preceded training camp, Dennis Lindsay, the executive vice president of basketball operations, the most cumbersome title in, in all of sports, <laughs> it seems like. Uh, He he said the goal was to be top five in the league in both offense and defense. The offense, you could see it with. The defense, I felt like they probably lost a little too much for top five to be realistic. But he certainly expected that with Rudy Gobert there, top ten was still something they could pull off. But what we're seeing during this stretch is just a whole lot of apathy. And it's been shocking to witness a whole lot of disengagement. You mentioned, you know, that so long as you've got Rudy Gobert... Uh, you're you're always going to have that capability there. And don't get me wrong, Rudy is still one of the absolute elite defensive forces in the entire NBA, but he's not been his usual self during the stretch. What I suspect is going on, the Jazz has seen a lot of defenses lately. Um, take the Houston Rockets recently. You know, the Rockets have famously kind of a shoot going with the center. They're playing a small ball lineup. Um you know, it's not absolutely small. You've got Robert Covington out there, who's 6'8", six, 6'9", six, got long arms. You know, they've just added Jeff Green, uh, the former jazz man, who's kind of in the same boat. But what we're seeing, what we saw from the Rockets against the Jazz is, you know, a lineup with everyone between, say, 6'4", and 6'8", out there, and they're just switching everything. The Jazz... The Jazz's bread-and-butter offensively forever has been pick-and-roll offense. This is what enabled Rudy Gobert to lead the league in dunks a year ago. The fact that he goes out, he sets a screen. You know, everyone makes fun of the 
the screen assist stat that the, the organization likes to play up to kind of point out Rudy's value, but it's there. He goes out, he sets a screen, he rolls to the rim, they throw him a lob, and he dunks it. That's not happening with nearly the frequency this year, and Rudy continues to be increasingly frustrated with his limited role on the offensive end. And while he denied this, uh, you know, one of my colleagues straight up asked him, is your, is your lack of offense impacting your defense? He said, no, I'm, I'm professional. I can keep the two separated. Watching him play, I, I don't think that's the case. I think he's incredibly frustrated. There was a sequence last day where he came out, set a high screen for Donovan Mitchell, ran straight down the lane, nobody within five feet of him. And he was part-time to the rim for, you know, he could have got a three-second violation called on him he was down there alone for so long and nobody found him donovan mitchell couldn't locate him he swung the ball to bogey bogey seemingly had a better vantage point to find him and for whatever reason still didn't uh and you saw rudy just kind of mentally check out in that moment the next time down the court uh jason tatum gets switched on to mike conley posts him up and normally that's a position where Rudy would come and bail out his teammate, and he made no move to do so. So there's that component going on where Rudy just seems very discombobulated, very kind of, I don't want to say disgruntled. It's maybe, it's maybe too strong a word, but he definitely is, is seeing, you know, his lack of involvement on the offensive end impact his effort level on the other end. And then in terms of the perimeter defense, that that really remains the mystery because, I mean, this is an organization that signed Royce O'Neal to an extension, uh, what, just a month or so ago, yep. you know, with the, with the viewpoint that he's become an incredible 3 and D player. You know, he's, he's been shooting at or above 40% from three for most of the year, and he's considered by far – their best perimeter defender, but he's been getting blown by with the arming frequency. Same has been happening to Joe Ingles. I mean, we all know Joe is not the most fleet of foot. He's not the most athletic. There's a there's a reason his nickname is Slow Mo Joe. But where he used to be able to get by with kind of dabby and veteran guile, uh, it's not doing the trick for him anymore. So these guys are increasingly losing perimeter containment forcing Rudy to kind of step up and cut off the driver. And then, you know, these guards in turn find Rudy's guy or Rudy stays at home and then they find either a shot at the rim or, or, or a short pull up. Um, honestly, the, the bigger thing even beyond that is that this team's just kind of gotten a little lazy in transition defense. That's been, that's been a season long problem. Honestly, you saw a little improvement last night against Boston and the Celtics only had 11 fast break points all night, but it's just been a thing where all season long, you know, they, they get caught looking and teams have been exploiting that a long rebound that no one chases down. And next thing you know, there's a run out and a dunk. And so they've been saying all year long, Transition defense needs to be better. The communication needs to be better. But at this point, it's all kind of ringing hollow because they've addressed what the issues are and they don't yet seem capable of doing anything about it. Yeah, and I mean, it gets late early in professional sports and we're only, what, a month and a half away from the playoffs. So they're going to have to figure out something pretty darn soon. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? 
Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. The Score's MMA podcast with James Lynch gives you your mixed martial arts fix. And the Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. You mentioned a few minutes ago that you know one of the things fans are starting to question is, is Quinn Snyder as good as his reputation that precedes him says he is? From your vantage point, if this season continues going down this road and if, say, the Jazz do flame out in the first round again, is there any reason to believe Quinn Snyder is on the hot seat or his job's in trouble? Or is there still enough equity for him within that organization that they'll still believe in Quinn Snyder as the coach of this team going forward, even as they have championship aspirations? I'd, I don't see that as an issue at all. I, I don't think Quinn is on the hot seat. Clearly, the season is, is, is not going how they envisioned at this moment in time. And at the same time, you know, the public line they're putting out is, yeah, we're in a bad spot. Guess what? Look back at our, at our uh, pre-Thanksgiving trip where they famously lost four or five and were blown out pretty easily by uh, Indiana and Toronto in that sequence. And are the circumstances different? Yeah, the team was still pretty new and coming together then. Uh, whereas now in February, you would, you would think – they shouldn't be having these kinds of lapses, but it's been a bit of a Jekyll and Hyde franchise over the course of the season. And in spite of all of that, they're still 36 and 22 and solidly in the playoff picture. You know, there doesn't seem to be any danger of them falling out of the, out of playoff position unless they lose everything remaining on the table which doesn't seem likely. You mentioned the equity that Quinn had built up, and and there's a ton of that. He came from the San Antonio Spurs franchise. At one point, he was the Austin Toros coach in, in what was then the NBA D-League. Uh, Dennis Lindsay, the guy kind of running the basketball off, has a history with the Spurs franchise. Those relationships mean something. And between Dennis and general manager Justin Vanek and assistant GM David Moraway, they've got complete faith in Quinn. He's, he's regarded as kind of one of the most cerebral coaches in the entire league. This has been an organization that under Quinn has constantly been one of the better defensive teams in the league. You know, this is really the first year that's kind of the aberration. I understand the argument that, well, this was a team that was supposed to uh, take it to the next level. And they haven't. They've, you know, from that perspective, they've underachieved. And I get that. You know, I, I don't disagree with that. But this also is an organization that prides itself on not panicking. The turnover that they had this off was thought through and it was deliberate. And did it seem, you know, what, was it drastic just in terms of the sheer numbers that they had of, of new players on the roster? Yeah, it was. But last year, they brought back. 13 guys from the year before you know they've been devoted to a certain core they thought they were going to be building around gordon hayward who uh who famously left for the celtics they pivot they draft donovan mitchell he steps up far faster than they anticipated 
you know, this, this is a group that is not inclined to make panic moves. And while what the Jazz are doing right now, as I mentioned, doesn't, doesn't appease anyone, doesn't make anyone happy, they're going to look at it. They're going to, they're very deliberate in how they evaluate things. You know, this was the narrative at the end of last season when they felt like they underachieved. Um, you know, they said, we're going to take a look at every guy in the roster. We're going to take a look at every guy in the coaching staff. We're going to take a look at ourselves. You know, this, what did we misevaluate? And certainly they share some of the culpability in this. You know, Ed Davis, we've mentioned a few times, he's been a solid role player throughout his career. Uh, one of the league's elite offensive rebounders. Uh, he was second in the league last year in uh, defensive plus minus. And he just was an incredibly bad fit for this team. You know, you, you look at the resume and you're, and you're thinking, okay, he's, he's a great, solid backup big for Rudy Gilbert. He can handle his minutes. And his game was just incredibly ill-suited for this team. Same with Jeff Green, you know, a guy who, by the measurements, by the numbers, by the resume, you know, he could have been a small ball five. He's someone who could have, uh, you, you should have been able to deploy, you know, into some of these defensive lineups that you wanted where it would help to have a long, rangy, switchable guy out there. And his demeanor was just not a good fit for this team. The fact that they needed a guy who's capable of, you know, being consistent from three-point range, and, you know, you look at him and he's a career 33% shooter from there, uh, and, and, you know, not good enough a rebounder or a defender to make up for those deficiencies. And... In retrospect, you know, these these guys are going to put it on themselves and say, yeah, these were some bad moves that we made. These were moves that did not put the franchise in the best position. These were moves that detracted from the ability to maybe add another defensive-oriented wing, you know, to shore up the deficiencies there. So I don't think Quinn's in trouble at all at this point. I would say it would be my short answer, except that was a very long answer. <laughs> no, I get it. And I think a lot of people probably see it as boring, but from an organizational perspective, sometimes, or a lot of times, actually, the best thing to do is to not do anything when you actually do believe in the talent you've put together and the coach and, you know, top down. If you still believe in the team, the worst thing you can do sometimes is make a panic move. The last jazz question I have for you is, okay, so they're six in the West right now. They're only a half game up on seventh, Dallas. But they're also only three or four back of both second and third, the Nuggets and the Clippers. So really, it looks like the Jazz can finish anywhere from second to seventh. The only seeds that seem off the table are one and eight. Is there a team in the mix of the potential playoff opponents that you think or you get a sense maybe the team thinks would be the best matchup? Is there a team in that mix you think Utah can handle? Or do you think at this point for this team, it's just about figuring out what's wrong with themselves? Yeah, at the moment, it's definitely the latter. And I mean, uh, to take your answer the other way, there's a team that they definitely want no part of, which is the Rockets. Yeah. Not that they would admit that, but for whatever reason, they just continue to struggle against that that organization. Um, you know, whether the Rockets are deploying Clint Capella as they did a year ago or whether they're playing small ball, they just seem to have the Jazz in number for whatever reason. The Jazz have also struggled against the Lakers. Kind of ironically, after all these years of the Jazz having a two-big-man system with uh, Rudy Gobert and Derek Favors that you know everyone uh, relegated kind of antiquated and anachronistic, you know, uh, 
that's honestly what's making the Lakers that much better than the Jazz this year is, is their ability to deploy, um, you know, lineups with Anthony Davis uh, in combination with JaVale McGee and, and Dwight Howard. And the Jazz are just too small now to uh, fare well against that group. Against anyone else out there, I feel like they they think they have a solid chance. And the thing is, you know, while there was frustration in the locker room last night, certainly, and while it's been building over the course of this, this four-game losing streak, what this group inevitably comes back to is they have a belief, whether justified or not, that they can get things turned around just as quickly as, as they've gone south, you know, that they can get things on the right track again. They point out that for a lot of the year, they have been top 10 in defensive rating, that they weren't, you know, uh, th- this porous in defensive containment, that they've uh, been able to do pretty well, and and they've had offensive consistency, and they view it as, a, they view what's going on right now as a blip. They view it as, like, themselves being in need of a reset, and once they get a few days, to really kind of ingest what the coaching staff is saying, you know, in, in terms of perimeter containment, in terms of uh, transition defense, in terms of not devolving into isolation, hero ball on the offensive end, you know, continuing to move the ball, uh, looking for ways to counter these small switching lineups uh, that have bedeviled them. They really honestly feel like, uh, they're in a position where where they can rebound solidly from this. Again, as for whether it's realistic, I don't know. You know, uh, this Western Conference is incredibly talented. You know, the Lakers have been pretty solidly in control. The Clippers have been a, maybe a little bit behind what we expect, but, you know, is, is anyone riding off a team with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George and, and that incredible amount of depth around them? No. The Nuggets, you know, are solidly built. Again, I, I don't know if people view them as like true contenders. You know, they're they're a great regular season team, but until we see how they handle the playoff crucible, they're going to be left on a little bit. The Rockets, we're seeing both James Harden and Russell Westbrook really start to uh, develop that chemistry again and handle the business. The Thunder have been far better than anyone thought. The Mavericks have been far better than anyone thought. At the same time, you know, none of these teams, as you, as you mentioned earlier, like there was not a thought that like anyone in this Western Conference was necessarily beatable. And we've kind of seen that play out. So I think they still believe that if they can get the defense ratcheted up a little bit, if they can get the offense humming again. And that's the thing, you know, it's like they only scored 103 last night against the Celtics because their first quarter was just an abomination. And by the fourth quarter, they just they weren't moving the ball anymore. They weren't doing the things they usually do, and they had a wretched fourth period as well. But in spite of two awful offensive quarters of basketball, they still put 103 on the board. The previous night against Phoenix, shooting 7 of 31 from three-point range, they still dropped in 111. So there's hopefulness there yet. Whether it's warranted, I don't know. You know, I've got questions about the chemistry in this locker room. I've got questions about how much they truly are capable of defensively. You know, I asked Rudy straight up, does this team have less defensive talent than what you're used to with this organization? And, and he came back with, 
uh, defense isn't about talent. It's about hustle and being connected and on the same page. And, you know, while those are certainly components of it, you know, it's like no matter how much Juwan Morgan hustles, <laughs> no matter how much he understands the game plan, no matter how hard he tries, he simply is not as, as talented defensively as Rudy Gobert and not capable of providing the same impact there. There's something to be said for that. So what are their chances? If, if you look at what they're doing right now, certainly uh, I think no one would argue that this team is headed for another first-round playoff elimination. But again, we've seen this team struggle at times. We've seen them display the ability, some ability anyway, to figure things out and right the ship and, and get going in a positive direction again. So I wouldn't argue that they're championship contenders, but uh, – I, I also wouldn't say they're they're a guaranteed first round out. Real quick before I let you go, because I know I've already kept you longer than I said I would. You had a front row seat to watch him yesterday. How awesome was Jason Tatum last night and, and the tear he's on right now? Oh, my Lord. <laughs> uh, that was something to behold. He just, the run that he's on right now, he got literally anything he wanted against the Jazz. I mean, anything. There was, uh, there was this one sequence in the second quarter where... Jazz had a lot of their second unit guys in. Uh, George Niang, uh, their backup four, who's affectionately known here as the minivan. If that gives you any kind of indication about his physical prowess, uh, he was assigned to guard Tatum. And to his credit, stuck with him. You know, he was positionally, fundamentally sound. He knew where he was going. He knew the tendencies. Uh, he stayed in front of them, you know. He did everything you could reasonably expect George Niang to do against Jason Tatum, and it did not matter. You know, Jason is just such a lethal, elite weapon right now, um, and his body type on top of that just, you know, kind of accentuates his growing skill level. If he couldn't beat Niang on the drive, he just rose over him and and hit jumpers with ease. And it wasn't against George, you know, it was against Bogey, it was against Royce O'Neal, it was against Joe Ingles. Literally anyone the Jazz could throw at him, they did, and it did not matter. He just was that locked in. He's just that skilled. I'll admit, you know, in previous seasons, I had my doubts about him. I, I wondered if uh, if the hype exceeded the actual uh, player, but seeing the steps that he's taken this year I'm, I'm not too proud to admit that I was wrong and and uh, he's every bit deserving of the praise he's getting right now yeah I know early in the season his shot selection was so much better than it was last year he just wasn't converting at the rim and from makeable areas and now you look at his last 18 games he's averaging 28 points on 52 percent shooting and 47 percent from deep he had a play in the fourth quarter last night where he made this really pretty behind the back pass on the perimeter and I think that just kind of hit home how much confidence he's playing with right now. Because yeah, maybe, maybe there's a lesson there in us not to uh, judge a guy as a finished product before they've been in the league for five years, you know? Absolutely, and I think for Jazz fans, hoping that their team should not be judged when there's still a quarter of the season left. So hopefully for those Jazz fans, they get some of the rewards that Jason Tatum's now reaping from a team perspective. It should be interesting down the stretch. We'll, we'll see how it goes. It's not going to be boring. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> yeah, neither is this conversation. So again, I really appreciate you taking the time i know it's been a busy couple of days there it's been my pleasure joseph uh we'll do it again sometime great all right you take care all right thanks again to eric walden of the salt lake tribune for providing us 
some good insights and even just, you know, getting the pulse of the locker room and the fan base there. Kinds of things that we can speculate on from whatever city we're in and whether you're a reporter, a fan, if you're not there, it's kind of hard to understand what that pulse is like. So thanks again to Eric for joining us after what's been a busy couple days in Salt Lake City. For Joe Wolfon, wherever he is in Hawaii still, I'm Joseph Michal, Pound the Rock.